Yes, I am taking attendance. You get a gold star if you make it to all the classes. Now, if, if you would like, I know, if you would like, well, you can, you can listen online now if you want. The website has been launched as of this week. And so if you miss a class, if you go uh, to the, now, again, like I said, please still come. I, I like to see you. I, I don't want it to just be me and like two other people and everybody else is listening online. So, right, yeah, that would just be mean. <coughs> then I'm not going to teach anymore. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, if you go to the Grace Church website, and in the little blue bar right over on the left-hand side, you click the home button, and you'll now see two resource pages, uh, one for sermons and one for course seminars. And the new podcast has been launched as well. Um, and so it's now, our podcast is Grace Church Salida, and all of the teaching that we're offering will be on that podcast. So you can either, for this seminar or for sermons, you can go to the website, or you can go to the podcast. It'll be in both places. The website, obviously, will be the only place where you can find the handouts. So when you go uh, to the website, you'll you see it week by week. And you'll see an audio file, you can press play, and you'll see a PDF button that you just press, and that'll download the handout so you don't miss getting the handout as well. So thank you to uh, Aaron Blondeau uh, for, for getting that done and making that happen. So if you see Aaron, if you know Aaron, give him a big thank you. He works hard to make our, that part of our technology work. If you would like to get any updates or anything, I, I've got some people uh, put their email here. Um, no pressure, and we won't use this list for anything other than getting information about the course seminar. And so we'll just pass this around if you want to put your name and email address there, if you want to get any updates that we send out. Um, uh, that would just be specific to course seminars. Yeah, just specific to this class. So if you know, whatever, if, uh, if I were sick and we had to cancel and maybe I'd send an email to all of you or something like that, so. Um, I could do the podcast. <laughs> wow, okay. Aaron, make a note. <laughs> all right, <clears throat> let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much uh, for another evening together and um, another opportunity to sharpen our ability to understand your word and most importantly to therefore understand you and what you're on about in this world and in your relationship with us. Father, thank you for being a God who makes and keeps promises. Thank you for, a, for being a God that while we were yet sinners and had nothing, nothing, um, to attract us to you, you sent Jesus to die for us, for the ungodly, um, for those who were helpless and were hostile uh, to you. And so thank you so much, and thank you for making promises uh, along those lines. Uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things here tonight together. Um, may this be an encouragement not only to our minds, but our hearts and our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, you should have gotten a handout for um, what will kind of be the next session. I'm not sure how to talk about this because it's just we're just kind of getting done what we can get done as we do. 
um, but it'll be that first theme that we're going through in Kingdom Through Covenant. So kind of like week four, but it'll be week four and five and, and so on. Um, so you should see a handout for that coming around. Uh, so I'm a little embarrassed to say that I didn't mark where we stopped. So did someone make a note in their handout, like you had a note at a certain spot? So I think, did I talk about plot? Did, I, is that where we are? Is that plot? I think, I think I guessed right. Got it. Okay, so I didn't talk to you about literary form. Okay, I, I guessed wrong. Thank you for helping and clarifying that. This is why people write manuscripts, so then they're ready to go. Yes? Um, I do. you don't have a handout from last week <clears throat> there we go all right so uh, tool number two so we're talking about um, to just give you uh, context uh, the grammatical historical uh, or the the toolbox of exegetical tools so we talked about the grammatical historical method and now I want to talk about literary form so uh, closely related to tool number one if actually not a bit of a part of it is discerning a text's literary form or its genre, or as D.A. Carson, who I love so much and is French-Canadian, would say, genre. <laughs> we probably all understand what literary form is because understanding a story is dependent on being aware of the kind of story that we are in. So in movies, right, we do this. We categorize movies by their form. So is it action-adventure? Is it romantic comedy? Is it fantasy, science fiction, drama, or just straight comedy? And it's really important for a movie reviewer or a viewer or a couple trying to decide on a movie to know what exactly the kind of movie that they are in because if you think you're going to an action adventure and it ends up being a rom-com, then you get kind of frustrated maybe, depending on who you are. It's the same in the Bible. Poetry, narrative, epistles, apocalyptic, prophetic, literature, wisdom literature, are all found in the overall story of the Bible. And often some of the pages in the Bible will fall into two or three categories at once. And each category will have slightly different rules and guidelines for how you should read it. For example, a lot of the apocalyptic in the Bible, and none of these are like total in, in nature. The rules bend a little bit, all right? But apocalyptic, generally speaking, is figurative in nature and shouldn't be taken literally. These are interesting words because people will say, I want, I take the Bible literally. Have you ever heard that? Right? We talked about this in first semester. I take the Bible literally. Um, usually what people mean when they say that is, I take it for exactly what it's saying on its face but there are parts of the Bible that aren't literal. They're figurative. And so you can take figurative language literally. What literal means is, am I taking it 
Am I taking a genre in the Bible? Am I respecting the genre that it's in? I, I don't go to Revelation, and I don't believe that when it's talking about, for example, in Revelation 13, when there's a beast that's coming up from the water and a beast that's coming from the land, that isn't like a movie that's describing something that is actually going to happen where there's this beast that's coming up from the land. That's a figurative depiction of empires that are coming up and ruling and taking over and conquering the world. Same in, sing in, same in Song of Solomon, right? Or Song of Songs. Uh, we've said this before. If you try to literally depict the description of the man describing his wife, you would have an incredibly grotesque woman, right? I mean, worse than any Picasso painting that you've seen. So we don't take those things, that's figurative language. Poets use lots of metaphor and analogy and figurative language. And so you need to know the story that you are in so that you're going to understand it correctly, making our way, right? Because remember the grammatical historical method, our goal is to understand and discover what is the author's one intended meaning. Understanding the literary form will be a pathway to getting there. We've seen this, for example, as we've been working our way through Romans, breaking apart Paul's arguments, understanding the structure and the shape of those arguments, as well as continuing to go back again and again to the literary form, an epistle, a letter that he's writing to people, he's making arguments. We've talked about, this is probably five sermons ago, where I described this idea of diatribe, where he's, there's a figurative um, guy that a, a debater that he's debating that he sets up as kind of a foil to be able to have the argument as a stand-in for the Jews to whom he's writing to. That's a literary form of writing inside of epistolatory kind of forms. So, and so we've seen how that shapes the interaction between Paul in, and the Romans. And it's why I keep telling you to read ahead, right? So that we keep trying to get and hold the entire argument in our minds the best that we can, reminding ourselves of that so that we know the whole story that Paul's trying to tell us, which is the next toolbox that we're going to look at. Toolbox number two is storyline tools. So inside this box are some of the tools that we need to help us locate a particular text within the storyline of Scripture. This is, once again, where our new definition of biblical theology is important. So remember the Shorter definition for biblical theology that I gave us? Who can say it? No, that's, that's a different way to see the whole story. This is the definition of biblical theology. A unified story that points or leads to Jesus. A unified story or a discipline that helps us experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. So I've said a few times that a key to understanding the story of the Bible is to know the part of the story that we are in, which begs the question, how do I do that? You might be asking that. How do I do that if I don't know the story all that well yet? Right? So that part of that is to have that tool that I gave to you on how to read the Bible that I handed out last week, right? Um, did everybody? I think I have some copies of that. Uh, last week we handed out just a second. Yeah.
Yeah, so last week I handed out this little hut, you know, read through the Bible reading plan. So that was a way to be able to see the whole kind of picture in one page, the whole story of the Bible, to help you understand the part of the story that you are in. Um, and that book, that uh, version of the Bible called Books of the Bible, that has a number, number of articles in it. And we talked about the Bible Project, right? Like, that's a great resource online that you can go out to that resource and you can do the book overviews, and they're always going to be situating it inside of the larger story. And they've got the Old Testament overview video and the New Testament overview video. And so if you feel like you kind of lost your way or you never really fully understand the whole story of the Bible, if you just watch those two videos, and I think they're each about eight or nine minutes long, and like in 20 minutes, you can get a good sense of the entirety of the story of the Bible. Or, of course, you can continue to come to this class where we're trying to help you get a good sense of that. Uh, for sure. So now what I want to give you is some of the tools in this understanding storyline for um, studying the Bible and understanding biblical theology. So first is plot. The Bible has a plot line. It tells one story through 66 books that under the authorship of the Holy Spirit working through men all arrive at the same port, right? This is what we've been saying, the person and work of Jesus Christ, a unified story that leads to Jesus. And this plot is not simply a literary device, although it is that, it is also a historical unfolding of the progressive revelation that culminates in Jesus. So I mentioned to you this um, wonderful author that has been so helpful to me in understanding biblical theology and the Bible, um, Graham Goldsworthy. Here's what he says about that. It is the nature of biblical revelation that it tells a story rather than sets out timeless principles in the abstract. The Bible does contain many timeless principles, but not in abstract. They are given in an historical context of progressive revelation. What's progressive revelation? What does that mean when we say there's progressive revelation? Growing and learning? Kind of. A pe Right. Right. Yes. So as you progress through the Bible, the story is revealed. You start to see what God is doing revealed more and more as you make your way through the story or at the same time, because this is a historical document through history, the story of the world and the story of the Bible. God did not choose to bring his son into the world immediately after the fall. Rather, he chose to progressively reveal himself and his plan throughout human history. Because he's God, he gets to make that choice. The, re the result of revealing himself over time and through the hard and happy history of Israel was to ensure that when the Son did come, when Jesus actually came, we would recognize him to be the fulfillment of all that God was doing in history. So that means we can then authentically integrate texts in the Bible with the message of Jesus by rightly seeing their place in the plot line of the Bible. And at the same time, like we've said this already before, right? So we want to see each of those events operating at the point on the timeline in which they're operating and treat them and respect them in their timeline, but also see how is this showing me something over in the overall plot, in the overall story that God's unfolding. Does that make sense? Don't forget, if you have a question, please just raise your hand, just like when we were back in high school and college and, and stop me, okay? Exactly. 
Uh, next, the next tool we have is theme. Theme. Good stories are held together by themes, sometimes multiple interweaving themes. And part of looking back and forward from any one location in the story is knowing how to trace the relevant themes backward and forward. For example, like we've said, because we all love Star Wars, when you know that Darth Vader is Luke's father because you've seen the end of the second movie, you're watching that first movie differently because you're going to trace that theme of that relationship and that family history in the larger story of what's happening. The same for when we talked, I think we talked last week about the sixth sense, didn't we? Yeah, so there was that theme of the color red that made its way. Who's really dead? Who's really living through this story? Can you think of any themes that you might know of in the Bible? Or name a book of the Bible and think of what a theme, the theme of that book might be? Sorry? What's the theme? Yeah. If you had to name one theme in, for that book, what would you think that, what would you say the theme is? <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> Human stupidity was his answer. It's a theme that's been writ large in my own life. So anybody else can think, can you think of a theme that's in the Bible or in a book of the Bible? That maybe you see in that book, what's that? Genesis has creation. A creational theme. Mm -hmm. But then it also rolls over in some cues into rejection, redemption. Any others? I think about rescue a lot as being a consistent theme. Yeah. Yeah, so rescue as a, as a theme for everybody else to make sure you can hear. Yeah, really starting in Exodus and then, yep, and we just see that over and over and over again, culminating. Which is, what's the ultimate rescue? What other people think? What's the ultimate rescue? Come on Sunday. Thanks for setting up my sermon for Sunday. <laughs> Come on Sunday because there is, actually the story of Jesus is not the story of full rescue. The rescue is incomplete. So ultimate rescue isn't at the cross and at that point in the story. Jesus certainly has something to do with it because he always does, right? <laughs> That's we knew that in Sunday school. That's the safe answer. Some other themes that we're going to start tracing over the coming weeks are covenant, how God relates to his people, kingdom, how God orders and rules over his people. Um, one that was, was mentioned already, Exodus, how God saves his people. Exile, how God punishes his people, which judges is certainly a 
connecting point into that, Kyle. And, and then how do all of those lead into and find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus? All right, let's add another tool now. Um, promise fulfillment. When we read our Bibles, we see that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. We saw that this last Sunday, um, or at least I tried to make sure we saw it. Unlike us, he always keeps his promises. It is this conviction of the faithfulness of God that underlines so much of the biblical author's frame of mind as they are writing the story that God has inspired them to write. So that we see in the scripture, excuse me, that the promises of God, prophecies in the broadest sense of the term, if you will, typically have multiple horizons of fulfillment. So this is so you want to kind of layer these things together, right? Because that's how they operate. We see all of these within the scriptures. So there's a plot line that's going along. There's themes that are interwoven along that, that plot line in the story. And then there we see these um, recapitulations of promise and fulfillment. And we see multiple layerings of the promise and how those things are being fulfilled in different ways over time, which will lead into the next tool, just to give you a sneak peek of... Um, continuity and discontinuity between the covenants. And when we watch these multiple horizons of fulfillment, we see that each successive fulfillment is not just later in time chronologically, but it increases in significance both theologically and historically. So that's kind of that progressive revelation piece kind of melding together there. So let's, let's look at an example so we can see this worked out that illustrates both the, the multiple horizons and the ever greater character of God's promise keeping. So we, we saw this a bit on Sunday. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Turn to Genesis 12 in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 1. Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. One thing to just think about here is, um, I just think it's so important, you guys, right? We said the first, the first and most important thing you can do in Bible study is to pray. That's why we began with prayer. We're asking God to do something. Um, I think of this morning, I, I was reading, I'd, I'd made my way to... Uh, Leviticus now in, in my communion time. And uh, so I'm out on my prayer walk and I was at the bit where they're talking about uh, the Day of Atonement. And um, just really stunned by the reality that, that God made a way to take care of our sin. Um, just really stunned by that. And, and, and contemplating one, <laughs> that I'm so glad that I'm a pastor in 2023 because I just wouldn't do well with a lot of entrails. <laughs> just, 
there was just entrails and and intestines and blood and fatted tails and just it was it was just just so gross (laughs) i'm just thinking oh thank you jesus (laughs) in so many ways thank you jesus (laughs) but at the same time also being flabbergasted by the necessity and seeing the reality of the impurity of everything everything is impure because of the fall everything that's why they're walking around that's why they're splashing blood on the tent that's why they're splashing blood on the altar that's why they're putting blood on the lobes of Aaron's ears and on his big toes and on his thumbs to to sanctify his whole representative of his whole body like we are so defiled and God made a way in the holiness of his presence which is right it says that our God is a consuming fire to be covered with asbestos so that I can survive in the consuming fire of the holiness of the righteousness of who he is. And that then in that space, he interacts with me. He communicates with me. That, that in this covenant, I mean, don't miss that the God of the universe is talking to a man. He's condescending to talk to this impure, pagan, ungodly man. And there's just this, we just, I think sometimes we have to fight for the spiritual realities of what's happening. And when that happens, when I, when I fought for about 10 minutes on a prayer walk, like these doors start to just you know, crack them open to get these glimmers of the glory of who God is and to experience him. And that this, like you enter into covenant with us. He's initiating this. It's just so amazing that he would do that. I, I'm just stunned. And he promises that childless Abram, who will then become Abraham, because he will be the father of a great nation, that a great nation will come from him and will bless all the nations of the earth. And this, right, again, what you have to hold on to, and I want you to believe it tonight, this happened. This happened. God spoke to Abraham, and it happened. And, and like we saw on Sunday, right, like we are a part of the, of the stream. That's what we're going to see when we get to kingdom through covenants. Like we're a part of the stream of these covenants that are, that are building, in some sense, being renewed, expanding, growing, getting more beautiful, deep, rich, more powerful. And just a few verses later in Genesis, he gives promises to Abraham's offspring of the land, the land of Canaan. And then as we go in through the story, we start to see the horizons of fulfillment unfold. There's the miraculous birth of Isaac and then Jacob. And then 12 sons with a whole bunch of weird, scandalous, crazy stuff in the, in the middle of all of it, which is when I went through Genesis, and this is like, oh, you guys, this is just a great thing. Just read your Bibles through in a year, please. It's just so great to start in January and go right back to the very beginning, right? In the beginning, God said, and the world was. And then to go through these stories and to see what happens with, like, how the 12 sons come about. I'm just like, God, we're so crazy. Like we just so, we're so bad. 
And you just kept to the promise. You, you meant to do something and you're going to see it fulfilled in spite of just the insanity. I got the mandrake, so he's mine tonight. Like, <laughs> what? Yeah, go, if you haven't read that, read that part of the story. It's really weird. By the opening of Exodus, there's now this multitude of people, right? A great nation. So many that Pharaoh of Egypt is intimidated by them. Joshua then recounts the story of the nation conquering the land. By the time of King Solomon, this nation is prospering greatly by his wisdom. And if we just leap all the way into New Covenant, we... We see, of course, that Jesus is the true promised offspring, which Paul makes clear in Galatians and Romans. And by faith in Jesus, men and women from every nation are blessed as they become children of Abraham, a spiritual nation that will spread to the very end of the earth, Romans 4, 13 to 25. And yet, like Abraham, once again lives as alien and, aliens and strangers. First Peter, there are strangers and exiles in this land. All headed, right, Hebrews will say, that this is not, you are not citizens of this country. You're not, this isn't the country. There, there's a greater and brighter country that Abraham believed in and that we believe in. A great nation of all of God's people under God's rule that will inherit the world. One day a world that will be made new, restored as new creation. Read Revelation 21 and 22 tonight if you want to have sweet dreams. So that how many times... Do we see the promise to Abraham fulfilled in just that quick little recounting on half a page of paper at least five times? It's this multiple horizons of fulfillment where we see it working through the story. Each time it's, it's greater, it's growing in significance and theological importance, all of it leading to Jesus. So when we read a passage of scripture, we want to see where and how it's fulfilled throughout the entire storyline of the Bible, right? Again, it's that you know, images that I just keep going to common images in my own head and hopefully for you too. It's that, it's that planetarium view where I'm always trying to situate myself and understand where am I in the story. And then as you, over time, and as the longer that you're a believer in Jesus and the longer that you're reading the story and the longer that the Holy Spirit has an opportunity to reveal things to you through the reading of the word, this is, I mean, you have to do this, right? This is, this is your life, <laughs> This is your life, this book. Then you start to be able to make those connections. So when I'm reading Leviticus, I know the story of Jesus. I've read the biographies of Jesus. I've read Hebrews. I've read Revelation. And so I know where the story is going so that I can rejoice. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I can jump to Hebrews and I can see... All the places where he says over and over again, you are the once and for all sacrifice made one time. You are the great high priest now who sheds his own blood and doesn't do another sacrifice. You are the lamb who will take away the sins of the world so that I don't have to go to a priest with a dove or a bull or a goat or a calf or whatever. Over and over and over and over again, there is a once-for-all sacrifice. Oh, oh, you guys, on Sunday we're going to see this. We're going to celebrate communion, this meal that Jesus gave us to signify the reality that I am made clean. So when I'm reading Leviticus, because I know all of that story, Leviticus comes alive in a way that is absolutely remarkable. 
absolutely remarkable. Even if you, you know, even if you're just reading the headings and going over some of the bits of all the different kinds of offerings and what it looks like to offer them. And, ooh, then you see Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. I mean, you should know Leviticus 16 should be a huge chapter in your life as a Christian. But there's these these critical chapters. Genesis 12 is another one. Genesis 12 should be this milestone in your life, understanding the story of the scriptures. Exodus 20. Why would Exodus 20 be a milestone in your life as a Christian, understanding the story of the scriptures? Right, the Ten Commandments. Right, The Ten, which then are expanded upon with the other commandments, the other laws that are given in stipulations. All right, where was I? Sometimes to see promise and fulfillment is to see how the New Testament authors use Old Testament texts. We've talked about this, but again, so important. For example, Matthew in his biography of Jesus often makes it explicit. He will say, this happened so that X, whatever that is, would be fulfilled, right? We've said he has more Old Testament uh, direct quotations and allusions than any of the other biographies. Which means that one of the greatest tools in biblical theology is the cross-references that you find in most printed Bibles on each page at the bottom or in little middle columns. Or if you have a Bible software, you'll see a little, you know, a little letter, like an L, and you can click on that, and you can see the cross-reference. And a lot of times, it'll stay up there, then you can click on that, and you can jump right back, right? Because it's a bookmark, right? And so we want to go back and read the context of that cross-reference. You need to start being really good at um, connecting all these dots, right? Like there's all these dots in the story and, and how are they, I want to look to see how are they connecting the dots. Okay, another tool for understanding storyline is typology. Typology. Now, an assumption in this pattern of promise fulfillment is that God not only speaks, it is assumed that he's also the master of history, right? So he's not... He's not David Attenborough narrating for you. He's, he's speaking it. He's the master of the history. He providentially orders events in even individual lives so that they prefigure what is yet to come. So this is, maybe this is a bit that, hopefully that analogy that I tried to give you where he's, he's author, director, actor, right? And so, um, and that doesn't remove the dignity of any individual, unique, created by God person. Because he's creator. So he gets to say what he does with us. Do you feel like you have control over your story? Sometimes we really do, don't we? Or, or we operate under the illusion that we have control. And then some event occurs in our lives that reminds us very clearly we are not in control of our story. Or we do something that reminds us, I'm so glad I'm not. Because if I were making all the decisions, I mean, do you really want to be the one to have absolute power and control in the universe? <laughs> Just, it would not go well. You know that. You know you shouldn't be entrusted with that kind of power. Not even Spider-Man should be given that kind of power and responsibility. So he providentially orders events and even individual lives so that they prefigure what is yet to come. There are those who exist as historical analogies that correspond to future fulfillment. And the biblical language for that kind of operating in history is types. 
which simply means a pattern or example. Graham Goldsworthy again. The essence of typology is the recognition that within Scripture itself, certain events, people, or institutions in biblical history bear a particular relationship to later events, people, and institutions. The relationship is such that the earlier, earlier foreshadows the later, and later fills out or completes the earlier. A type can be a person, like Adam, Moses, or David, or an object, like the ark and the mercy seat. Do you remember this from a couple weeks ago, where we had to understand when Paul says Jesus is the mercy seat, well, what, is, what does that mean? And then we, we went back and looked at what is the mercy seat, and then, oh, wow, the mercy seat was a type for Christ. And it pointed forward to something, and then looking back, I understood more richly what that something was. Listen, for instance, to Romans 5.14. We'll get there next Sunday or the Sunday after. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He, Adam, is a type of the coming one. So we're not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. Paul does not simply draw a comparison between Adam and Christ. That would be one thing. What he's arguing for is a, his, a historical correspondence in which the type Adam points forward to and finds a redemptive fulfillment in the antitype Christ. And that former Adam helping us to understand and even define for us the work and meaning of the latter, Jesus. So we understand something more about Jesus because of what we understood about Adam and the way Adam is going to point to Jesus. We'll unpack that in detail in Romans 5, 12, and 12 to 21. Both exercising a federal headship over the human race. One bringing death, Adam, through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so that all sinned and all die. That's what federal headship means. You're, you're a representative, and it flows from you. You have this kind of rule in who you are over everyone that follows. And then Jesus doesn't merely repeat Adam, but goes even beyond that. Through one sin, all this sin entered in the world, but through one act of obedience, that one act of obedience is able to wipe out all of the sin of all of humanity for all of time. What's higher than a trillion? Quadrillion? What's higher than quadrillion? Quinn? Septillion? An infinity of sins, right? I mean, just like, I can't wait to preach Romans 5, 12 and following. The type always points forward to something greater than itself. It's important to understand that a type is not allegory. That makes arbitrary and mere linguistic connections between symbol and the thing symbolized. Um, let me give you a really bad example of allegory. There's a lot of people who um, throughout the ages have seen the parable of the Good Samaritan as an allegory. So the inn represents the church, the innkeeper is the Apostle Paul, the, old, the oil and the wine are sacraments, trying to find like, that's how allegory operates, right? It's, it's representative of something and so you're trying to see what the symbols are. So for example, um, Pilgrim's Progress 
is allegorical. And that's okay. Like, John Bunyan wrote it that way. And, and so I'm supposed to see Christian or pilgrim as, as this, the pilgrim Christian as an allegory representation of Christian and, and his sword as the Bible and Apollyon as Satan. And it's written to try and for us to figure out who do each of these characters represent in reality. But we, don't, we want to be careful that we don't apply allegory to places in the Bible that it doesn't fit. So we're not, we're not meant, for example, like I said previously, to figure out do the five, stone that, five stones that David picks up to slay Goliath represent faith, hope, love, strength, and honor for you to be able to slay the giants of your life. Or, or Augustine's, I think, um, error in describing the, sky, the scarlet cord that Rahab lowered from Jericho. Maybe you've heard this is um, it's the blood of Christ dripping from the windowsill and the scarlet cord then represents like Jesus flowing throughout that that doesn't work. There might be a surface resemblance between the two things, but it doesn't make it a type. So the safest way to establish a type is to root it in the biblical text. Nowhere does the text say that Jesus is the scarlet cord of Rahab, but the text in the Bible does refer to Jesus as a second and greater Adam, as Abraham's seed, as new Israel, David's greater son, Passover lamb, once for all sacrifice, the temple, the good shepherd, a king, a priest, the rock struck by Moses, the true exodus, the vine of Israel, the Lord of the Sabbath. All of those things are descriptions for Jesus and types of Jesus. So we can look back at these institutions, person, and events and say that they are types of Jesus. Why do you think it would be important to say something is a type of Christ or to recognize where those types of Jesus are in the story of the Bible? Why would that be important in our reading of the scripture? Does it tie into progressive revelation? I think so. That's a great, that's a great counter question. Does it tie into progressive revelation at all? I think so. So if that's true, then why would it be important to know all of these types? Yeah, yeah. So Jill said the kind of the facet approach, like, so you're turning, if, if everyone couldn't hear her, you're, you're turning, you're seeing different facets of the whole story, and so it makes it more rich. Okay, so take that and put it with our definition of biblical theology and answer the question, why would it be important to know types throughout Scripture? Creates unity through the story. You're almost there. To know Jesus more, right? Like this is, this is about growing one step closer to Jesus. And so when I see it's not merely the story, right, Jill, that I'm turning as a facet, it's him. I'm seeing all the qualities of Jesus and everything that he is and everything that he's fulfilling all of these streams, all of these themes, all of this revelation that's progressive, it's all moving like, 
like great powerful waves, if you will, that are cresting on the person and work of Jesus, which then makes him more magnificent. It makes him more beautiful. It makes him more multifaceted. He's not two-dimensional, three-dimensional, or even four-dimensional. He's trans-dimensional, right? Like he's just Because that's what we want. We don't want to be able to shrink him down to manageable size for pity's sake. He's not manageable. What did, see, there's, everybody here is probably far better at Narnia than I am. They're standing on the, on the, on the parapet of, of the castle and they're looking down on the beach and Aslan is walking on the beach and there's two characters talking. Sweetie, do you remember what the two characters? And, and he, he is, when, it, when it's, he's not, it's, what's the great quote? He's not safe. But he's good. He is not safe, but he's good. Right? And, and Aslan is this, there, there is, I think Lewis would not, yeah, he's probably a type. I don't think Lewis would want to say that Narnia is allegorical. I think he would blanch at that, um, what I know of Lewis. But um, Aslan is this Christ figure. And, and Jesus is good, but there's a certain kind of, <laughs> when, when we set him rightly as he is friend of sinners and he is compassionate and he's loving and he holds people in his arms and he's king and master and lord and ruler and sovereign He's those things too, and, and to see all of the way that the types were, right? Like how I've said, without the Old Testament, the New Testament is very thin. You're, you're not getting the richness of the story. Without the Old Testament, Jesus is very thin. Jesus is very flat and one-dimensional. Continuity and discontinuity is our last storyline tool. The difference between promise and fulfillment cannot simply be explained as a movement from lesser to greater or a difference of degree as we, as we move through this progressive revelation. Despite the continuity of the story, there's all kinds of continuity. The movement from promise, let, let me do this. Um, can we have some people open to some Bible passages and read them for us? Can we have some participation? So who, who would like to take Colossians chapter 2, verse 17? Lisa. And who would like to take Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5? Andrea. And who would like to take John chapter 4 verse 23? Got it. All right. So despite the continuity of the story, the movement from promise to fulfillment is described in scripture in different ways than just promise to fulfillment or continuity. So Lisa, Colossians 2.17. And then Hebrews 8.5. John 4.23. So the Bible talks about shadow and reality. 
mere copy and genuine article between symbol and the truth that it represented. Right? Jesus there talking about the temple and now where is worship really going to happen? So what the Bible is itself telling us and what the story is revealing to us is that in addition to continuity, there is significant discontinuity as we move across the epochs that are happening within the story from one horizon of fulfillment to another. So we have to be able to discern those things again, right? Because we want to understand the story. How do certain... So here's, here's an absolutely fundamental one. I can remember really wrestling with this in school and we had multiple conversations about this. What level of continuity and discontinuity operates in the law given by God in the Mosaic Covenant? When you think about all of the places where it says some pretty, to us, to our eyes and ears, some pretty crazy things. For example, uh, George and Jim and I, um, I, I talk a lot with our staff about making sure they get good rest. Ministry can be hard. All of our jobs are hard, right? So ministry is that way too. Ministry can be hard. So how are we getting good rest? And, and, and how we as a family seek to pursue um, quite imperfectly, uh, especially recently, but we seek to pursue Sabbath, for example. And so, right, fourth commandment, um, a permanent, right? The, the law says, as I've been reading through Genesis and Leviticus, this is a permanent statute that I am setting for you. This is a forever statute that I am setting for you. If you see a man picking up sticks on the Sabbath, kill that man. So what level of continuity or discontinuity are we going to believe is present in the scripture? And based on our conclusion there, then we have to apply that understanding to those particular laws. If I declare to you, hey, I'm I'm celebrating Saturday, Friday at 6 p.m. until Saturday, until about 8 when I go to bed on Saturday night as Sabbath, and you see me carrying wood from the backyard in to make a fire for my wife, should you strike me down? <laughs> These are important questions. Is there continuity? If the law is a representation of the character of God, which I believe it is, most importantly, it's showing and displaying his character. What are those things that we, and then, and then it's like, well, I don't know if, you know, is rest really required for me? Is rest, and, then, and then we read those things, right? This, these are the things that we have to try and understand in the overall story of the scriptures and operating, where are we on the plot line? Where are we in the covenantal system? Because then how am I going to interpret those texts? Right. Again, you read Leviticus, there's all kinds of crazy stuff with clothes. Man, I, got, I was quite sick yesterday morning hearing about discharges. Right? Like, I mean, hey, we keep it real in biblical theology course seminar. And all that is important because it means that the seed of a type or a promise points to a fulfillment but that fulfillment is the point of the story all along. It's the reality. It's the substance. So we have, to, we have to figure out and see where does maybe a particular stream continue or where does that stream stop and does that get fulfilled in a different way? And yeah, so continuity and discontinuity are, is an important tool in your storyline toolbox. Our basis for hope, and here's another reason, and again, 
there's a lot of biblical theology in Romans I'm discovering, and we're going to talk a lot about, I think Sunday is probably, the text is, um, probably the title of the sermon is, The Basis for Our Hope in the Glory of God. Our basis for hope is not just in the points of continuity and a movement from promise to fulfillment. It's also in the discontinuity. And Jesus himself would bring all of these themes together in the utterly unique act of his death and resurrection. Therefore, all of those things, all of the hopes culminating in him, not in any of his typological predecessors. So our hope isn't ultimately, for example, to be like David. It's to be like Jesus. So let's sum up the tool sets that we need to understand a passage of Scripture. We start with the tools of exegesis, exegesis, and then we move to the storyline tools of themes, covenants, promise fulfillment, and typology, which help us mark off points of continuity and discontinuity. Or to put it another way, we look down like if we're thinking, like this is the whole situating thing, right? Like I look down in exegesis and then I raise my eyes and I look forwards and backwards in storyline, right? So that's what I'm doing. Okay, where, where am I in the story? Okay, I, okay, I got that. Now I can, I can root around in here, right? Get my head back up, make sure I haven't lost track of where, where I'm, okay, I know where I'm in the story. Does that make sense? So that's how those tools operate together for you to really understand the scriptures and apply them to your lives. All right. Um, questions? Right. No, we would. Well, yeah, definitely. I think I'll, I think I'll give you introduction. A very, I did. Which I'm very excited about. <laughs> Seven o'clock. I'll probably let you out early tonight so that we can try and see my manuscript for week four is 20 pages long. So <laughs> that might be a two parter. We'll see. It just depends on lots of things. I, yeah, I, I don't have a timeline in my story. It just We just are where we are, and we don't know how long it's going to take us to get there. there. That's where we're situated in the story. <laughs> what's, what's really exciting, though, is, hey, you know, congratulations, yay, all of you. You made it through four weeks of the tools. And now, like, which I personally have found enjoyable, but I feel like this is where it gets really fun because we're going to start to work through themes. So this, I think this is kind of like, this is the sauce that you were really coming for, is what are these themes in the scriptures and how do they unfold? How can I use these tools myself to start working through and see these stories? Um, so my introduction has a little bit of review because I do want to have us know some of these storyline um, components. Um, so what are the four major movements of the story, Eric, because you were there at the beginning of the class. Four the four major movements of the story. Starts with? Kill the girl. Or, yeah. Not kill the girl. Play the dragon, save the girl. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 
He's on the side of Satan, folks. Kill the girl. <laughs> that's, the, that's the six words that describe the entire story. So you answered a question I didn't ask, but well done. Yes, kill the dragon. Kill the dragon, get the girl. So that's one sentence that describes the entire story of the Bible. What are four words that are four movements? You don't get to answer because I know you know, Kyle. Okay, hold on, stop, stop, stop. Okay, so the first one's creation, but is there someone by raising of a hand? Andrew, I see your hand. Do you have the four movements? No? Okay. Diane. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration, or new creation. <laughs> so, um, you've, yes, you've, you've heard... He loves us in all of our failures. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy, you've heard me say that name. Um, and again, I just, I recommend you get, uh, I, last week I brought, and I didn't bring it with me tonight, but this, uh, his three volume work. But if you just wanted to get one, his first volume is like this thin, it's about, it's about this size. It's gospel and kingdom. And it just, it's just so, so good. And it's, um, it's older but it's, it's just still incredibly good and helpful. Um, his description of the whole Bible in one sentence instead of six uh, words is eight words. Um, God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's, that's his attempt at the story of the Bible. Now, what you're hearing in that... Right? So that's a, that's a description of the plot, but you're hearing a theme. Can you guess what the theme would be? We mentioned it already a little bit earlier. The kingdom, the kingdom right? So God's rule. The story of the Bible is a story of God's rule. And in order to have rule, you have to have someone to be ruled over, and you have to have a place where they're being ruled, right? So God's people in God's place under God's rule. Rule. So let me, let me give you some biblical backing um, very quickly for that sentence. In Genesis 1 to 3, we see that God rules his people, Adam and Eve, in his place, the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 6, God rules his people, Noah and his family, in a place, the ark. From Genesis 12 all the way up to the exile, God rules his people, Israel, in his place, the land of Canaan, by means of his law. And they rebel and he exiles them. Then in Matthew's gospel, we discover a man who perfectly lives according to God's rule. And the people who are united to this man by faith look forward to a new heaven, a new earth, a place where they will live together forever under God's rule. So the whole story of the Bible in eight words. God's people in God's place under God's rule. In the last session, we, in the last teaching, we talked about exegetical tools and storyline tools. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to essentially, with the help of a few scholars as our guides, Goldsworthy, and then, and then actually, so we're going to, this is what we're going to explore, this theme, kingdom through covenant. Now, we're not going to do it to that degree. <laughs> you can do it to that degree. This is an excellent excellent book. 
Um, and these are two really, really, they're just great guys, uh, number one, but incredibly gifted scholars. Um, it's, it's a bit technical in places, uh, just to warn you, uh, if you want to read it. Um, and so, but it, you know, it's, I find that reading books is like weightlifting. You don't get stronger if you don't lift outside your weight, right? And so that's what you want to do when you're reading. You always want to be reading at least one author who's above your pay grade and is stretching you. Um, and, you know, a lot of people are like that for me. <laughs> so, and certainly Gentry and Wellam. But, but they, they, it is accessible. Um, this is really excellent. And then um, I want to, so a couple weeks ago, I brought the, a couple of silver books that I showed you. It's, it's uh, uh, Studies in Biblical Theology. Uh, and I had, I think I've got like whatever, 30 on my shelf. I just remembered uh, yesterday that Crossway has a series called Short Studies in Biblical Theology, which a lot of people go, oh, thank you, Jesus. Short studies in biblical, not long studies in biblical, not, not, you know, this study. So here's kingdom through covenant or the kingdom of God through covenant. <laughs> does that feel a little bit less intimidating? I submit that we all would say it does. So these, this is a great series. I think they're planning on somewhere between like 30 and 40 uh, in this series. So here's the, the kingdom of God, the son of God, a new creation, uh, from chaos to cosmos, creation to new creation, the serpent and the serpent slayer, covenant and God's purpose for the world, the city of God and the goal of creation, work and our labor in the Lord. Um, so just like, so to see, right, these are all themes in the scriptures. And so the, this is biblical theology. It's like one of the great things about biblical theology is it's so helpful because you're taking the story of the Bible and you're layering it on your story. There are themes in your life, right? Marriage is a theme. Family is a theme. Kingdom, the kingdom of America versus the kingdom of God. Work, these are themes in your life. So this is a really helpful, if you want to come up and look at any of these afterwards, you can do that. Um, so next week, we will start diving into kingdom through covenants. So we're going to make it all the way from the very beginning, Genesis, all the way to Revelation, maybe next week. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes, this is now in the first three sessions are already out there. Yep. So my practice will be um, immediately after this, I'll upload it to the web. And as soon as Aaron can get it to upload it to the podcast um, and to the website, he'll do that. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, hope, it, I hope it is. Uh, any final questions before we pray and dismiss? All right. Please remember, if there's any feedback that you have, um, don't be shy. Send me an email, um, whether it's on the teaching or it's something that you wish you had a different expectation or what have you. Um, I, I can't promise <laughs> that I can meet all of those, but um, just want to continue to have this serve you really well. And so would love to hear your feedback um, as I seek to grow as a teacher. So uh, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus. 
It is one thing to have been made right with you and to have you legally declare over us that we, are no, we no longer bear the guilt of our sin because Jesus bore it for us and that we are now free from your wrath. It is a whole nother to know that absolutely connected to that is reconciliation with God, Paul says in Romans 5. We have peace with God because we have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus. Father, there was an open war between you and me. And because of Jesus, hostilities have ceased and I have a relationship with you. And so does everybody who believes in Jesus alone. And so thank you. Thank you for restoring the relationship that was broken. Thank you for being our Father. We love you, and, and I just ask for your protection over these folks as they travel home and for your continued uh, watched care over us as we awake tomorrow. Cause us to rise from our beds in the morning with great hope and delight in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. <laughs>